Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, welcome back, everybody. We are going to get into Second Kings this week. I have got a guest with me today. Christopher is, is still out. I'm looking forward to the day that he comes back, but I did persuade or beguile someone into joining me to record today, and so we're going to welcome Jeff Goddard. Thanks for joining me, Jeff. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Shoot, Chris has some pretty big shoes to fill, but I'll, I'll do what I can. I'm, I've been listening to this podcast since you guys started with Mosiah, what, like almost two years ago now, I guess. Yeah, just so, over two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So thrilled to be here. A little bit about myself, I suppose. I'm going into medical school. My background's in genetics, but I am working as well on a book on uh, trying to better understand Christ through a lot of the hermeneutics that I've learned listening to you, Ben, and, and to, to Shiloh and, and Christopher and, and, and Riley over at the Contemplation Podcast. So I am growing as much as I as I can trying to be a better disciple and, and to contemplate these these themes. So hopefully I can add something of value tonight. We'll, we'll find out. Well, I, I'm sure glad you're here with me. I got the chance to, to meet you just last week, just a few days ago for the first time. And that was interesting because I saw you there where we were supposed to meet and I didn't recognize you. I didn't know who you were. You were just like this random person. And and you just are like, I'm going to sit down by you. And I, I thought it was just like, oh, this guy's <laughs> friendly. I had no idea who you were. You just struck up this conversation. So that was that was kind of fun. But we, we <laughs> talked for three hours. So that was good. Yeah. And, and I, I had the upper hand. I've been listening to your voice for a very <laughs> long time. So I recognized you really quick. So <laughs> good deal. Well, again, good to have you with me. All right, we're 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 going to jump into a discussion here of Second Kings, but I'm going to kind of take a minute to back up and zoom out a little bit on our Old Testament discussion here, because Second Kings is, is the last book in sort of this Deuteronomistic history that we've been going through here. We've got First and Second Samuel, and then First and Second Kings, and these really are kind of all one book. They're sort of a semi-consistent narrative throughout them. Originally, First and Second Samuel weren't separate books, and First and Second Kings weren't separate books. It was just Samuel and Kings. So the, the consistent narrative that is being established here is about the monarchy, and then we go into the division of the kingdom and the failure of both of the kingdoms. That's, those are sort of the string of events here. The overarching narrative is focused on the loyalty of the people to the one true God. The role of prophets here is to remind the people of the covenant to demonstrate the power and the love of God. So again, to to bring in some more context for an ancient mindset, consider that in ancient times, the threat of cultural and physical extinction of a people was very real. 
I mean, if you go and, and look at the histories and the archaeology and, and everything on this, there were entire civilizations that were completely wiped out in a brutal manner. And this happened just all the time, essentially. In the biblical text, we see that God's power is demonstrated in preserving the Israelite culture and identity, especially at the expense of other nations. And this is because he has chosen them as his people, as a special people, as a peculiar people, the text sometimes says. In our modern mindset, this might seem unnecessary, that God would choose a particular nation and then he would favor that nation at the expense of others. This is difficult for us maybe to grasp, especially with a Christian mindset and, and culture that we've come into over the past several hundred years. Christ came and showed the more excellent way. Christ reveals to us a picture of the nature of God and the character of God. So prophets in ancient times had glimpses of this, and we see moments in the scriptures. We see these moments where this, as we've said before, God kind of shines through the cracks, so to speak. But they had their imperfections. Many stories of their shortcomings might be exaggerated, but that probably means that their virtues are exaggerated as well. I was just thinking, you know, we're talking about the very real human inclination, I guess, of seeing the us versus them, right? You build a tribe, and this is certainly older than anything in the Old Testament, as old as humanity itself. You build a tribe of people that can help you get the resources you need to survive, and everybody that's not in that tribe is competing for those same resources and therefore the enemy, right? And so we've got this us versus them paradigm that, like you said, you can see God shining through the cracks and very explicitly God tells us through Christ and in and, and, and the book of Acts, one of my favorite scriptures is the idea that God made of all people or made of one blood, all peoples of the earth, right? So you, you have that balance between a people that already see everybody else as them, as the enemy and God trying to slowly but surely draw them into this relationship of universality that that we are all one family. And uh, I mean, we're, we're still struggling with that today. So right. if, if we can, it is entirely reasonable that we can learn from the lessons that, that we're looking at. Like, like you said, I mean, that's the whole reason why we have scriptures is so that we can hopefully not repeat the same mistakes. But also, I think, be very forgiving that that we're all trying to learn that same lesson, right? So it's understandable that that this is going to be their struggle of how do we preserve our national identity, our cultural identity, our ethnic identity as a chosen people, right? Well, that's a really good point. I think that's one of the reasons that the name of the people Israel is so profound and significant because that means the, them who struggle with God or he who struggles with God. And that's basically, you know, what our existence is, right? We're, we're struggling with God or, or some might even term it reality. But the principle is still there that we struggle with this and, and try to process it and make sense of it and find our place and our meaning in it. And so to have a people that's named that, you know, that struggle with God, that really gives a name, right, to our identity as, as a people and sort of validates that, that it's okay to struggle, right? And and I think that a lot of people maybe feel like that if they're struggling, that that means they're doing something wrong. And, and it's like, look, the name that God gave his people is <laughs> they have to struggle with him. And so there's some depth to that that can definitely be explored. And certainly as a people, we are 
members members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we're, we're comfortable with the idea of putting ourselves in the shoes of others and as, as they're going through their journey and, and finding that in that allegory our own struggles, right? So it's like you said, it's, it's profound that, that God calls these people struggle with God because that's what we're all going to have to do. And so that's, that's I think, one of the biggest blessings of the Old Testament is to be able to put ourselves in the shoes of the people that are telling us for thousands of years we've done nothing but struggle. Yeah. I mean, and then to the role of prophets in all this, you know, sometimes we tend to elevate prophets above where is appropriate or, you know, and then we have stories of prophets obviously not being given proper respect. And we'll we'll get to some of that concepts here later in our discussion. In any case, they're they're just common people. At best, their role is to point us to something that we must look at and also try to grasp for ourselves that we're, you know, they'll point us to something that we just talked about we're struggling with and that then we have a duty to go and grasp and make sense of for ourselves. So as we, you know, move forward in this, I believe we get to it next week. We're approaching the exile, both of the 10 tribes and of Judah. And in this period of exile, which there's there's about 150 years that separates the exile of the ten tribes from that of Judah. And in this period of, of these exiles, the ten tribes end up losing their story and their identity. That's why we call them the lost ten tribes, because they didn't maintain that identity throughout their generations. So they don't they can't look to their ancestry and identify who they are. Whereas the people of the tribe of Judah, who even today we still call Jews, they maintained their identity and their story through this exile. Or, as some may put it, they were able to fabricate a an identity and a story that helped them get through the exile. And either way you look at it, it was so powerful that it served them for thousands of years as this narrative that has help them keep their identity and strength as a people. So as I was saying, the, the tribe of Judah was able to hold on to that. And because they were able to hold on to it, that is why we have the Bible in its current form. I mean, we're, when we were talking about, you know, you're reading, especially in these sections, I've noticed it quite a bit in the last couple of weeks that they'll say, and this is the same until this day, right? And this mm-hmm. day, when the authors are writing, that's that's after the the exile, right? And they're looking back and doing just as you said, they're they're forging that cultural identity that it's going to to bind them as a people all the way up till today. And it, it kind of makes sense too, with that lens of after the exile, they're looking back. Of course they're going to be disillusioned a little bit with the kings and, and the rulers that they've had. That's why the, the the solid story from first Samuel all the way through to this point is a narrative of look at these rulers that that we've had and in part you know the great things that they've done especially looking at David who is their you know their political messiah but every single one of them look how they led us down right and and how they've led to the loss that that we've experienced in the exile right yeah so i mean the the bible and its its composition what it includes what it doesn't include how the events and the people and concepts are treated, they're all largely a result 
of the effort to maintain this identity, including things like David, like you said, and the mentions of the kings who were wicked and righteous and in, in that, you know, not in those terms exactly, but all are about maintaining that identity. And that is, you know, maintaining the identity both before, during, and after the exile. Um, we also, though, see, and, and there's clues in the text, that there are many things that are lost. Because there are some things that may not have been important from for one generation they felt to pass on to the next. And so those things get lost or they don't get included in the overall story. From a Latter-day Saint perspective, and according to our narrative, and our scriptural narrative, we see that a lot of these things are lost and that a lot of these things would have gone to help people understand the consistency of the character and love of God. And that's kind of one of the meta narratives that is throughout the Book of Mormon as well, to to see that there was this consistency in the relationship of God with the people, or at least maybe some more consistency than we might see in, in the Bible. But when Jesus comes and and we see his life in the New Testament, he comes to restore that was which which was lost. Right? In Luke it says for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. So Christ is the restorer of these things. And so when we take him and his teachings and his life as a lens, it helps us fill in these gaps and helps us bridge these misunderstandings of how we might approach this scripture and understand the character of God and our relationship with him. And that's part of that that Christological hermeneutic that we have applied many times here to the Old Testament. And part of the reason that we go into the discussion of how the Old Testament was composed and compiled and redacted and written was to show that this is a people that is expressing themselves and their experience with God. But it's not like some dictated word for word, something God told them, right? This is them expressing their experience. And so I think when we say we believe the Bible to be the word of God, right? We have this, we have this thing in that article of faith that says, as far as it is translated correctly. And that word translated is a very interesting thing that we've, we've discussed as well. Translated isn't just about taking it from one language to another. It's about taking it from one context to another, from one culture to another, from one worldview to another, from one mindset to another, and from one conception of God to another. And so when Christ comes, he gives us, in a sense, a translation that we are able to apply even to the Old Testament in our understanding. Yeah, and I think I'm going to paraphrase it. I can never get these quotes just right. But Brigham Young once said that, you know, I believe the, the Bible to contain the word of God and the words of holy men or righteous men and the words of unrighteous men and the words of the devil right so the full the full spectrum is in there and i think in large part you get that opportunity when you're trying to do that cultural translation that that contextual translation from one situation to another things just they get muddled and it puts a lot more on our shoulders to to struggle with the spirit it's a joyful struggle but we can't pretend that there isn't some spiritual tension there looking at these words and being able to say, okay, so I'm fairly confident that it isn't this literal thing because <laughs> that doesn't, it doesn't work with how I've experienced God. Right. But 
that still doesn't mean that I understand what I'm supposed to be pulling out of this. And it, you just have to try to, to wrestle with the Lord. And then we're, we're going to get to a couple of scriptures this week that Ben, you and I have talked about that it, it, it takes some wrestling and we're trying to figure out how does this fit into and how, how we see God and, and why, why isn't this fitting perfectly into, into our neat little box of, of, of our worldview and you just it's a wrestle it's a spiritual wrestle but it's it's worth it well it's what keeps it interesting you know just if you're doing a puzzle and every piece that you pull out of the box you know exactly where it goes it's just you lose interest really quick right there's there's no it's just not that fun so <laughs> yeah and to be honest that i mean since there are so many i know one of chris's quotes that there's many paths to heaven as there are people on the earth this is this is one of the ways those paths are forged right we, we've got a text, a canon, right? And it, it it makes it a lot easier to have cultural communication with one another because we have a canon. But guess what? We're all going to interpret it a little differently. And we're all trying to follow the spirit and do that. And that that leads to some, sometimes it leads to a little bit of conflict for, between us as, as mortals, but it makes it a lot more fun too, right? To have these conversations with one another and say, oh, I never thought about it that way. And, you know, maybe... There doesn't have to be a 100% perfect, correct translation for there to be value for each individual as they and they see it differently, right? And it's hard. It it doesn't really work if you have a really rigid worldview or a really rigid theology. But if you're willing to be flexible, it, it makes it a lot more fun. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, along that line, just as we continue in in the text in the story, then we we want to keep in mind how much really was truly lost in this, right? And how it's our task to try to bridge that gap of understanding as, as well as we can. This is a people, like we just discussed earlier, who are wrestling with their God. They're trying to understand why things are not going their way all the time. Particularly, you know, when we talk about the exile, this is a, a catastrophe, a crisis for the identity of the people. So, you know, the question is, don't we also wrestle with God on a day-to-day -day basis to understand the suffering in our life, right? So that that's where we can find some, some meta-meaning here to these stories. So I'm going to jump in here to 2 Kings. 2 Kings is a transition from the story and the narrative of the prophet Elijah to Elisha. And there is a lot of similarities between these two prophets besides their names, right? It's you have to sort of enunciate to even tell that these are different names. The flow of the political narrative goes from king to king and, and describes what they did and, and then gives them a stamp of either good or bad, right? And either, you know, Jehovah certified or, or not, <laughs> so to speak. This is sort of the Deuteronomistic narrative. It follows a, a pretty predictable template and formula for the kings. And we'll point that out when we get to it. You know, it, it's almost like they have this text and just a blank line. It's like, well, just write the king's name in here if he was good. And then there's a second template. And it's like, write the king's name in here if he was bad, right? And it's, the wording is the same for for good for all the good ones and the wording's the same for all the bad ones. You know, the good kings are compared to David, who worshiped the Lord and he put down all the other idols and gods. And the bad kings, they're compared to Jeroboam, who worshiped idols of Baal and Asherah, and did not worship at the temple, but in high places or or sacred poles, groves, or trees, which were representations of Asherah. Right? Elisha succeeds Elijah, and as I was saying, he performs many similar miracles. The miracles of Elijah and Elisha are not 
they're not just grand scale stuff like we saw with Moses, but a lot of them are small and even private miracles, right? Like with Elisha and Elijah for that matter, he go, one of them, he goes in and, and they shut the door, right? And this miracle is done in private. And these are just blessing the everyday lives of individuals. This to me seems like a change in focus from the normal role of prophetic miracles. And it seems to foreshadow Jesus in the way that Jesus performed miracles among the people. Yeah, this this feels like a, a significant transition. Not not that we lose it entirely, right? But this is a significant transition transition from a prophet is of the people of of Israel as a as a whole as a community, right? Of a of a theology that is based solely on the national identity to a personal theology of God through His prophets is is serving the one. Like you said, it it very much feels like a foreshadowing of Christ. Yeah. So here, starting in chapter one, we have a description of Elijah, and and elsewhere I think we get a description of his clothing. But here it he's called a hairy man with a leather belt, right? So this is actually similar to the description of John the Baptist that we get in the New Testament. And sure enough, when we get to the New Testament, John the Baptist is called Elijah. He's understood as a manifestation of him, and Jesus even refers to him in that way. And so. There's definitely some allusions to Elijah in the character of John the Baptist. Over here, we get an incident of the the people coming to talk with Elijah, or the king sending soldiers, I should say, to talk with Elijah. And this is the occasion of Elijah calling down fire from heaven to consume these groups of soldiers. It's 50 and then 50 again. I can't help but remember the previous occasion when Obadiah saved 50 of the prophets of the Lord in a cave and then 50 again. So it's almost like, you know, the flip of that where God is destroying 50 of these soldiers and then 50 more. Anyway, just sort of an an interesting parallel there. This is... The specific incident that is alluded to by the disciples of Jesus when they ask Jesus to call down fire from heaven, like Elijah, to consume this Samaritan town that rejected him, that didn't didn't accept him. And I, I talked about this last time in the short recording that I did, but this is the actual specific incident that Jesus refers to um, also when he rebukes his disciples and says they don't know what spirit they're of. He says the Son of Man is, has come to save, not to destroy. And there's some some interesting things going on here in Hebrew as well that I thought I'd I'd bring out because when we get playfulness or, or wordplay in the narrative in Hebrew, sometimes this just sort of evokes the poetic or literary nature of the tale and and might mark it as more of a folk tale than something that actually happened there's there's something rhetorical going on here that may not conform to what reality was and that's this that the the men come and they say let the man of god come down well in hebrew the man of god is ish elohim ish meaning man that's man of God. Well, 
what happens is that Elijah sends down the fire of God, which is Esh Elohim. And so it's kind of a, a play on words here that they're asking for Ish Elohim to come down. And what comes down is Esh Elohim, the fire of God. And, uh, you know, it's it's just like a really dark humor joke, I guess, uh, in some ways. there's I'm seeing some of those all over in here when you... When you look into some of the Hebrew, there's a lot of dark humor in the Old Testament. So sometimes you'll, you'll come across that if, if you look at some of those Hebrew terms. Kind of reminiscent of uh, like if you read like the Iliad or something like that. And you'll just every now and then you'll have to pause. And you're like, that was supposed to be a joke, wasn't it? That was, that was kind of dark, but OK. <laughs> yeah. And if you're not, you know, in this case, if you're not familiar with the Hebrew, then you don't catch it. You don't see the play on yeah. words that's happening there, yeah. right? You just see a man of God and fire from God, right? And you don't, you, there's no connection to be made. So the next thing that happens here in the narrative is that Elisha and Elijah are palling around together and comes the time that Elijah is going to be taken up into heaven. And I guess this is revealed beforehand. Elisha knows it as well. And they're traveling and they come to a river and Elijah takes his mantle, which is just sort of like a, an overcoat, and he takes it off and he hits the water with it and the water opens up and they cross on dry ground, right? So obviously, you know, just like in your face allusion to Moses and also Joshua. Remember, Joshua does this to the River Jordan for the people to cross, which actually was, you know, a, a reference to Moses. What this brings to my mind isn't just that incident of Moses parting the, the Sea of Reeds or of Joshua parting the River Jordan. But in my mind, I'm remembering when Moses strikes the rock with his staff. And I'm remembering a discussion we had where we brought up some commentary from Aviva Zornberg, who was referencing some Midrashic sources, about how Moses was told by God to speak to the rock. And he was so frustrated in, again, in the Midrashic sources that he didn't speak. He instead hit it with his stick. And that that's why, you know, God rebuked him because he decided in that instance to act out of anger or to use force rather than the power of words and persuasion to demonstrate to the people that that's where authority came from, not from the rod. And so I can't help but see a parallel here with Elijah striking the water and then Elisha just after, you know, the scenario when Elisha comes back, he picks up the mantle and he does the same thing. And like in my mind, it's like, oh, Elijah just taught Elisha the power of force, right? He's kind of passing on this teaching and I know that, you know, that may seem a little uncomfortable that it's like, well, these are prophets. You, you're saying that they're, they're teaching wrong things to each other. And, and yeah, that is kind of what I'm saying because they're, they're normal people and they can get wrong ideas and they can pass on wrong ideas, right? Even in our tradition, we have prophets that passed on wrong ideas one to another yeah, to I another was... generation. So I, I just kind of see that here. He does pick up the mantle. He's legitimately the prophet, but he, has potentially gotten a, a a bad idea or a false tradition passed on from Elijah. These are all great thoughts, and I hate to interrupt you. I was just I was just thinking a couple of thoughts here. The first one, when you talk about modern traditions, you know, we we now at this point, unlike the Hebrews, we're, we're people that are, are steeped in the concept of studying history, 
right? Which is very yeah. different than trying to pass on a cultural identity when you're trying to objectively look at the facts, as hard as that is, right? And to be able to look back and say, to be able to see things like, you know, the, the one that comes to mind is Elijah Abel, right? So we, we, we have for a fact that Joseph Smith was comfortable ordaining black brethren, right? Or that some black members of the church had been able to do temple ordinances in the form of baptisms for the dead. Like we have that as a historical record. And yet, because of the prejudices of, of a few men, that, that was lost. And then those prejudices were perpetuated. Not, I, I, would, I would point out, probably just like Elijah and Elisha here, it's not maliciousness. Obviously, they're not trying to do the wrong thing. But like you said, we're we're all mortals and we're, and we're doing the best that we can. And sometimes that means that we end up perpetuating things that are, even with the best intentions, going to cause harm down the road. I, I wanted to jump back real quick, just um, as a as a thought, I was trying to think of, even if it is a fable, why did this people include the story of the, the hundred being consumed by fire, right? And going back to the context of, this is a people that are writing, for the most part, after the after the exile, right? And they're trying to make it sense of everything they're trying to give themselves cultural identity and in their mind they're the failing the reason why they're in this exile in the first place is as a people especially the the rulers but certainly as a people they have not given the proper reverence to god and to his servants right and so this is a story of you you have to do that if you don't give proper reverence to to god and his servants it, it doesn't end well, right? Fire from heaven is about as mm. bad as it can possibly get if you if you miss that lesson. So if these are all stories that, um, true or not, they, they hold significant cultural meaning for the people that are telling them and perpetuating them. I think it's important to, to try to figure out what was the value for them. It may not be the same value for us, and that's fine. We're, we're different people, right? But it certainly did have value for them in, in that sense. I don't know if that was helpful. Yeah, I mean, you you brought up the the issue of the fire. It made me realize, I don't, I don't know why I didn't see it before, that Elijah seems to constantly be associated with fire coming down from heaven, right? So there was the the contest with the priests of Baal, and fire comes down, and then there's here fire coming down, and then you know, sort of in a, a poetic form, true to form, Elijah. Now it's not fire coming down, but fire taking him up into heaven. So Elijah ascends in a chariot of fire. There's actually a later Jewish tradition about this that goes back and says that this is how Enoch ascended to heaven as well, which, you know, in Genesis, we get like one verse on Enoch. But then in our tradition, we have the book of Moses that talks about Enoch founding the city of Zion and that they were taken up into heaven. So I thought that was just an interesting commentary that I ran across about how there is a Jewish tradition that seems to be maybe the source of that idea that that Enoch ascended into heaven didn't die. You know, Elijah is is supposedly unique in the sense that he did never die, but was taken up into heaven. Well, again, a Jewish tradition that Enoch was the same way. When we get over into chapter two, we run into another incident here. Now we're we're moving into the territory of Elisha. Okay, Elijah's gone. Now it's the narrative of Elisha. And one of the first stories we have here with Elisha is this scenario with him coming across 50 children, it calls them young children, depends on the translation here, who seem to insult him. And then he curses them and two female bears come out and maul 42 of these children. Okay, what the text calls calls children. 
So, all right, we're going to dig into this a little bit because this is actually a story that many, many commentators have struggled with trying to figure out what is going on here. Why is this happening? What is Elisha doing? How can this be justified? And so forth. So I read through, and I think you read probably a lot of the same ones that I did, Jeff, read through a dozen or so sources and commentary, and they all, almost all of them, tried to fundamentally justify this episode by going back to the translation of the word young children and saying, well, they weren't really children. They were, they were actually young men that were probably in their 20s or 30s. And since he was coming from Bethel, this was now the seat of a shrine of Baal. And so they were idolaters that were there or priests maybe of Baal. And so when Elisha comes along, they're actually threatening him when they're saying, go up, thou bald head. They're actually threatening him. And so it is, it's reasonable that a bear should come out and, and, you know, maul them, right? First of all, I don't find that argument really at least a bit justified because I don't, I don't care whether you're a kid or an adult, you know, insulting somebody doesn't mean you should get mauled by a bear. <laughs> so I don't, I didn't see much in that. But there was, interestingly enough, one of the Midrashic sources on this that does condemn Elisha's actions. They think he acted wrongly in this scenario. Now, I, I didn't get much more commentary on that, basically just, just the fact that they, the source in viewing this, this is a, a legitimate rabbinic commentary, authoritative, that said they, they didn't agree with Elisha's actions. The way that I see what's going on here is, is a little more nuanced. First off, I think what this story is, is more of a fable. It's like a moral cautionary tale about how we treat traditions and our elders. So the she-bears, or the female bears in this story, they would indicate, their presence indicates that these people, these youth, were probably messing with cubs, right? You, you wouldn't mention that they're female bears unless there was something significant about the fact that they're female bears. Well, what is significant about a female bear? What's significant about a female bear is that it's protective of its cubs, right? I mean, we, we even have this phrase in our idiomatic expressions today, you know, mama bear, right? We, we talk about mama bear and it's very protective of the cubs and that if somebody messes with the children, right, mama bear might come out and, and defend them. So this is even present within our language and, and culture. So to mention that they're mama bears, right? to me implies that there's some cubs there. And what we have symbolically then going on is that if these youth were messing with the cubs and then insulting Elijah, then what's going on here is not just a disrespecting of the elders, but they're also making light of things that are fundamentally dangerous about reality. And like the relationship between a mother bear and her cubs. And so when you do that, that's dangerous. And the idea is that you can't control what happens after that, right? You could lose everything. So several of these things are sort of indications to me that this is like a moral cautionary tale. There's there's another thing here in it is that there's 50 of them ostensibly, but only 42 are torn, it says, by the bear. And actually, we don't have anything, we don't have anything that directly indicates that anybody died in this scenario, right? You would assume that if someone gets attacked by a bear, they died. But what we do have is that the number 42 is all over in scripture associated with death. 
And so to say that there's 42 to me is a little bit of a little bit of a bell, right? That says, oh, you know, there's something symbolic about what's going on in this story. You know, you don't use the number 42 in this case unless there's something symbolic going on. So again, to me, I think we're talking about a symbolic cautionary tale, probably not an actual depiction of events. Yeah, and you would have to think, I mean, I'm by training a biologist and and you know trying to think when we when we count for divine intervention sure but two she bears mauling people it's not necessarily their their nature to you know smack one down and then run to the next one and smack that one down and all the way until they get to the 42 right so this is if i'm sure it could be i guess read literally but it definitely has a lot of things about it that make it seem like it's not really feasible in and of itself as a literal tale. One of the things that I've been thinking about, and, and we kind of talked about this before, Ben, and uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into it and some of the later, the next few chapters, but this is another example for me of how Elisha is being compared to Elijah. And in my mind, I'm seeing the writers giving giving this story as an opportunity for us to see that this is part of the mantle of, of being a prophet, right? We have the cautionary tale of mocking Elijah or, or not treating him with the proper reverence, and then fire from heaven comes down and, and consumes the 50. And this is another situation of his predecessor has that same mantle of authority that if you don't respect it, if you don't respect the person that God has called, same situation, uh, the the destruction of these 40, 42, or maybe they don't die, but certainly the mauling of these 42 people, right? So certainly a similar um, thing that's going on. Yeah. 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 It seems like there, there seems to be something that they might've noticed and purposefully made these stories fit like that. I don't know. Well, you make me think Jeff and I didn't, I didn't realize it to now. So I don't, you know, it's not like I have time to go through and, and write this out and, and look at the text, but there could be, it's possible that there's some sort of chiasmic structure to the Elijah, Elisha transition where the, the climax of that is Elisha ascending into heaven or Elijah ascending into heaven, ascending into heaven. And that's why the event right after is Elisha taking up the mantle and hitting the water, right? These are the parallel events. And then it goes, you know, yeah. might, might go from there again. That's just, you know, that's not enough of a pattern for me to say for sure. I'd have to go into the scriptures and, and write everything out, but it's possible that that we have this structure going on in the telling of these tales. And so we have, you know, some some similar miracles that are going to happen later on with Elijah yeah. that might match up with order and timing in in mirror form to the miracles and, and actions of Elijah. Not sure. Again, I'd have to look through some things, but yeah, I'm going to go over to chapter four here. When we get to chapter four, there is a widow that comes and complains to Elisha and it says here in verse one, now the wife of a member of the company of prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but a creditor has come to take my two children as slaves. Okay. So this is a widow and she is in debt or she's in bondage in a certain sense, right? She's having to pay that by giving up her children. They're going to go into indentured servitude. And so she comes to Elisha and cries out to him. All right. So this is recurring motif all over scripture. It goes all the way back to Exodus, beginning of Exodus, when the people are in Egypt and they're in bondage and they cry out to the Lord, right? And God hears. 
So just as the widow cries to Elisha here and, and Elisha hears, or, or, you know, as the representative of God, the people back in Exodus. And this has happened multiple times here as we've moved through the scriptures. So this is a common motif that we see. The symbolism that's happening here also is of God sort of being the husband and the people being the bride. And we see this all over. Christopher has talked about this as well, that the type of relationship that the God of Israel wants to have with his people is akin to a marriage. You know, he'll say something like, God wants to marry us, right? And it seems kind of weird, but but we talked about this term chesed, which is a type of loyalty and love that a husband has to his wife. And that's the same kind of love that is sometimes translated as covenant. So when we talk about the covenant of the people between God, it's, it's a type of love as well. It's It's not easily translated because there's a lot of connotation to it. So when we have a widow... That's someone that has lost their husband or their God. And that's symbolic of the people in Egypt that have lost their God and they cry out to him. And so, you know, God is coming to deliver them from that. And in this case, Elijah is going to deliver her from this through a miracle of the the oil, which is also, you know, reminiscent of the miracle that Elijah performs with the widow of Zarephath where he, the crucible oil and the, the barrel of flour never fails. So similar there, also this same widow, her child dies, and so Elisha raises that child from the dead, right? Very similar things going on here. In this chapter, we get multiple times where it's like, one day, you know, Elisha did this, and then it's like, one day Elisha did this. So this is obviously like some sort of anthology, collected stories of Elisha, when they're putting this together, they're just like, hey, everybody post here all your stories about Elisha. And everybody posts their stories about Elisha. We're going to include them in our in our in in this chapter about Elisha, right? So everybody posts their stories about Elisha. So that's what we get here is kind of a collection of stories about Elisha. Towards the end of this chapter, where the woman's son dies, we get some, some interesting things. I'm going to go over to verse 25 of chapter 4 of 2 Kings. I'm going to read. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite woman. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is the child all right? She answered, It is all right. When she came to the man of God at the mountain, she caught hold of his feet. Gehazi approached to push her away, but the man of God said, Let her alone. For she is in bitter distress. The Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Okay, I was thinking this is the same woman. Now it says she has a husband, so I'm not so sure anymore. I, I might have gotten a little confused <laughs> whether this is the same woman. But in any case, we have a, a, an interesting thing here. Another, a moment of distress, right? So this woman is actually upset with Elisha because he told her that everything would be fine. And what we find out is that her son has died. So I'm remembering now what what it is, is this woman was barren. She didn't have any children. And, and he said, oh, you'll have a child. And she has a son. And then it turns out her son dies. And she's like, why would you give me a son if he's just going to die? And so she comes and she's upset with Elisha. And instead of like, cursing her right and saying why are you upset with me or you know sort of berating her he says 
Let her alone, for she is in bitter distress. The Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. I think this is a really good example of of how we maybe should treat people who are mourning. We should be very careful about condemning or rebuking people that are in mourning, because when they're mourning, they're going to act. They're going to lash out. They're going to be angry. And we need to not take it personal, right? Elisha could have taken this personally, but he just said, hey, it's okay. There's something going on that I don't understand. The Lord's hidden it from me, right? That's just a way of saying I don't understand. The Lord has hidden it from me, but I'm going to try to understand. And so then he he works through a solution with her. And anyway, that just seemed like a, a profound demonstration of that to me. Yeah, well, so there's, a, there's a, for me, thinking about this whole chapter, there's a lot to unpack here. And I definitely want to come back to this this idea. I think it's, especially for somebody who's looking through the eyes of, of, of a Christian, of a disciple of Christ, this is... This is certainly the climax of the story, but it is interesting to me that it seems that, you know, when Elisha takes on the mantle of Elijah, it seems like he's trying to either the authors are creating that, you know, potentially that chiasmic structure that, that we talked about, or, or they're just trying to demonstrate that he is following almost identically in his footsteps, or maybe it really was that Elisha saw these things that Elijah did and said, those are, that's the way to solve problems, right? So he knows that Elijah saved a widow by this, this miracle with the oil. And so he essentially does the same thing, right? He knows that Elijah was able to bring a child back. So he feels perhaps empowered or, or more obligated to, to attempt to do that same thing. And, and I think it's interesting that, you know, if when we, when we model our lives after people, we can often find ourselves solving things the same way they did, not because that's the only way, but because that's the way that, that we have in our mind. That's, that's, that's the solution available to us that, oh, I, I know I can multiply the oil. That's what Elijah did, right? And just an interesting thought and, and something to kind of ponder and, and whose mantle we, we take up and, and how we solve our problems, right? I, the, the, the backside of that, the, the, the opposite side of that coin, like you've already mentioned, is this potential perpetuation of, of violence that that Elijah gives to Elisha, right? So there there are certainly models that we could we could stand to not perpetuate, but we do. I, because I think about this one quite a bit, this idea that compassion means to suffer with, right? And that that seems to be something that Elisha is open to here. That I, I don't understand why she's in pain, but I know she is in pain, and he's willing to be with her. You know, not force her to to meet him where he is, but instead go to where she is. And there's really not a, a better shadow or type of, of Christ than somebody who's saying, it's okay that she's in pain and I can meet her where her pain is, even if it isn't convenient for me or the ideal way to express that pain or, or anything, as if there is such a thing, right? That, that he can say, it, it's all right that she's she's in pain and now I'm going to meet her where she is and I'm going to, to sit with her in this pain. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot to that. So he, in in the story, Elisha sends his servant with his staff and says, lay the staff on the face of the child, but it doesn't do anything. And I, I kind of asked myself the question, you're like, why would he send him with the staff to do this if it's not going to do anything? One, it could be that he didn't really know. He was kind of just trying, hey, let's see if this works. Staff kind of thing. The other thing it could be is it just a demonstration to the woman that, hey, I hear you. I'm going to do something about this, right? Like I'm, I'm going to try to do something about this. He gets there and he goes through a very similar ritual to what Elijah does when Elijah brings the boy back to life. 
And then we have this interesting thing when the child gets up again. It says the child sneezed seven times. I thought that was just a, a strange detail to put in here. But the I think the key here is that number seven, because this boy is coming back to life. Right. And this number seven that we, we see, you know, all over in here, this indicates new life. This is creation. Right. And seven is the number of creation, new life. And so this is a miracle that God has performed. He's bringing new life to this boy. This is a demonstration that God really is with Elisha. Yeah, I, I, I just want to jump back real quick, just thinking about the staff thing. Regardless of what actually happens or, or what, what the lesson might be for, for the people, I think maybe a lesson for Elisha here is the importance that it's not in, it's not in the, the talisman, right? Cultures all over the world, including a lot of our modern cultures, rely very heavily on this idea of, of the talisman, right? It's the physical object that's that's making this thing happen. When a lesson that Elisha could be learning, and certainly we could pull from this, is it's not necessarily, it's not the object that has the power, it's, it's the personal touch. It's the ministration of the one to the one that calls down the power of heaven. And that's why we get to be his hands, right? It's both endearing it's endearing us to the person that we're serving. It's endearing that person to us. And it's endearing all of us to God instead of making it this impersonal thing of, you know, God, of course, could have healed him with laying a staff on his head. But that wasn't that wasn't the point. It was about creating those relationships. And that's that's always going to be God's point is trying to build those relationships. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. A little further on here in the chapter, we have Elisha providing food miraculously specifically bread in this case another foreshadowing of what jesus does in in multiplying and providing bread for the people and so i think we see in the gospels a lot of these allusions a lot of these were written for the jews for people that were familiar with these stories and so seeing that jesus was doing some of these same things really evokes that spirit for them right it, it helps them have a tie to Jesus and and what he did, because it's speaking to these deeply seated stories that were within their culture that they had a connection to. And so, again, you know, when when these stories are brought up by the, the writers of the Gospels, these are definitely alluding back to these prophets, Elijah, Elisha, and Moses, especially, and, and, and all these others. That makes sense, because we're, we're talking about a people that you couldn't say anything original Right. It was a very common in, in Christ's day that if, if a rabbi was teaching, he had to have some kind of source. Right. That's why it was so heretical that or, or at least unique that Christ taught with authority. Right. And not as mm. the scribes. He wasn't personally in his teachings, always alluding back to something else that somebody else had said. But that doesn't mean that the writers of the gospel who are inundated in this culture wouldn't do that. Right. In their minds, Elisha has the mantle of Elijah. Here are all the stories that prove it because he was able to do the same things. Jesus has this divine authority of God and it is the spiritual successor of, of our prophets. Here are all the stories that prove that, 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 that allude back to those same things that they did. He has the same power. Next story that I'm going to touch on is that of Naaman. This is a very popular story that we tell a lot of times because there's some some good principles in here. Naaman is a military leader of Aram or Aram that is essentially modern day Syria. He's actually an enemy of Israel. And in his retinue, we have a young girl who was taken captive 
a young Israelite girl that's taken captive, and she knows about Elisha. And so when Naaman has this leprosy, is what it's called, and again, you know, they called any type of skin disease leprosy. So this doesn't mean it was actually leprosy. It could have been any type of skin disease back then. They called them all leprosy, essentially. But he he's a military leader that's an enemy of Israel. In his retinue, he has this slave Israelite girl, and this is just totally seen as normal. Right. Like it's just mentioned in the text, but it's just totally seen as normal. It's not really even morally condemned. It's just like, well, that's what we do when we do raids. Right. And we're going to get to this, you know, in the next chapter about the the raids that Aram does on on the Israelites and and Elisha's role in that. So that's just kind of passed right over. Oh, yeah, there's a slave girl. We took her captive. And Naaman, he's got this skin disease. So, oh, go to Elisha and he'll heal you. And then he goes to Elisha. Or he sends his servant to Elisha, I should say. And Elisha tells him to wash, you know, seven times in, in the river. And there's no mention from Elisha, hey, you know, you should also let your your slave girl go back to her family, right? No mention of that, right? <laughs> no no moral obligation there. Maybe, maybe he could have said to Naaman, hey, let your slave girl go and then you'll be healed of your leprosy, right? You know, I can come up with a lot of things that, that could have happened in this story, but that's not the way it's told. Instead... Uh, Naaman gets upset, sort of, that he's told to just go wash in the river seven times. And he thinks this is, that's too simplistic. This water is dirty. We've got better waters, you know, better rivers back where I come from. Why would I even want to wash in this? That's not going to do anything for me. So he goes away and his servant says, well, I, I don't know what you're upset about. Like you came to ask Elisha what you should do. And if he had told you to do some grand thing, you would have done it. And he asks you to do this simple thing, and you won't even do that, right? And Naaman's like, yeah, I get your point. So he goes and he, and he does it. I think, you know, we've got a lot of common ways of, of analyzing this story. But the thing that stuck out to me this time is that we often just overlook the everyday miracles around us. We want some great grand thing. And we overlook the, the simplest and most amazing miracles that are just right in front of our eyes every day, everywhere, everything we're doing, every step we take, every breath we take, every word we say, there is infinite complexity to it. It's miraculous. And if we will just stop and, and realize that sometimes, I think that we, we can find, you know, a, a measure of peace and happiness in our lives that we might otherwise miss because of that ingratitude, inability to see that. So, you know, departing from that a little bit, you know, he washes seven times. Again, there's that number seven, new life, right? Creation. This is, he's being reborn. We might even liken this to our concept of baptism. So, yeah, I, I kind of want to just kind of delve into this one a little bit. I, I think the part that always stands out to me, I, and I wish I'd come better prepared, but I, I know that it's been mentioned at least once in general conference that there were certainly lepers or people that had skin disease among the Israelites, and yet we have the story of Naaman. And I don't know if it's because he's the only one that was healed or his unique response was instructive and that was what was valuable. But one of the things that, that I pull out of this that for me is really valuable is this is an opportunity for God to show it's not the fact that you get to say that you, you're the literal progenitors of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that make you special Israel. It's the fact that you're willing to have a relationship with me. And this is this is Naaman, this is the outsider, right, the Syrian, who gets to have the same healing because he's willing to do the things. And not, this, I'm not trying to make 
God sound overly transactional here, but just that Naaman is willing to enter into this relationship with God. He's willing to to have some trust that he can be healed. And, and this is God demonstrating that those blessings aren't for a select few. They're for anybody who's willing to, to reach out for them, right? They're, they're there. And it's, it's a lesson that Israel maybe don't, don't be so prideful that it isn't just you. Anybody could receive these if they were willing. My relationship with Israel is special because you guys historically have been willing. So continue to be so, right? Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. You know, you talk about the word willing and I think that's, what does that here? You know, Christ says all the time when he heals, your faith hath made you whole, right? It's not it's not the thing itself that he asks people to do that that heals them. It's their willingness to do it. I, I think of, you know, speaking of leprosy, I think of the story of the ten lepers. Christ tells them, Go show yourself to the priests. And the story says, as they went, they were healed. Right? Like it wasn't even them going. It was just their willingness to obey him, just their willingness that that healed them. And then there was just the one, right, that recognized that and turned around and, and was grateful for it. Yeah, and I, I haven't really explored the the spiritual implica- implications of the concept of the placebo effect. But what I'm thinking of here in, in medicine, I don't know if you've ever heard of the study where they essentially did they opened up somebody's knee. Uh, or several people's knees, and then they sewed it back up. So it's like a sham surgery for, for their mm-hmm. knee. And then they actually perform the the cleaning process, cleaning out the cartilage on somebody, uh, other patient's knees. And six months later, both patients have the same outcome as far as uh, feeling like they can use that knee. They're not feeling as much pain. They, they have the flexibility. And it all comes down to, do I feel like something was done? And, and so I think that's that's kind of, in my mind, what Christ is is offering them is it's easier to have faith when they feel like something is being done, right? I mean, is is there anything really healing in Christ spitting into the mud and rubbing it into somebody's eyes? Right. Probably not. But if it if it helps them feel like something is happening, it's a little easier to have faith in that, and it's a little bit easier to be receptive to God's healing power, right? Yeah, interesting point there. Okay, so moving on to chapter six, we have a story here where, or Aram, again, I'm not sure exactly the pronunciation of this, but this is a, this is a people that are Assyrian or, or in that part, and they commonly or periodically come and raid the Israelite people. This is actually a very normal, quote unquote, tribal practice. We just saw with Naaman, right? He has this slave girl in his retinue. They'll come and raid the people. And the benefit of the raid or the, the success of the raid is often just dependent on its surprise, right? You catch the people unprepared, you know, smash and grab, and you go, right? And what's happening in this scenario is that Elisha is warning the different people, oh, they're going to come and raid you, you know, because as a prophet, he apparently knows when they're going to come. And so he's going and he's warning these people and they're prepared for this army that comes and they're not able to do their things. Well, he keeps doing this and the leader of this army gets upset and angry. And so he goes to find Elisha. And he surrounds Elisha and the servant of Elisha looks out and he sees this huge army and he's all worried. It says to Elisha, you know, oh no, we're surrounded. And Elisha says, you know, praise and ask the Lord to open his eyes. And he sees that actually there's greater armies surrounding those armies all around. And I think that initially we could take this as, oh, you know, look, God's got his army there and he's ready to smash this other army and, and kill them all. And so a couple ideas on that. One, that's not what happens. And two, the other army doesn't see that army. It's not for them. 
right? It's what this servant boy needed in order to feel safe. And so that's what he saw. That's what the Lord opened his eyes to see, that he was safe. And that was the symbolic representation of, don't worry, you're safe. The Lord has you protected. And what ends up happening here is that we have sort of this juxtaposed ironic twist here because Elisha's servant's eyes are opened, but then the eyes of the Aramite army are closed. Elisha asks the Lord to blind them. And then he leads them into the, to the midst of another of their people, right? So they're, they become surrounded. And the first idea, I guess, thought here is, oh, now that they're surrounded, now we can destroy this army. But what does Elisha do? He says, no, 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 don't attack them. Don't destroy them. Feed them. So he feeds them and then he sends them on their way. And it says here in chapter six, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, father, shall I kill them? He answered, no. Did you capture with your sword and your bow those whom you want to kill? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and let them go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. After they ate and drank, he set them on their way and they went to their master. And the Arameans, I said Aramites earlier, but they say Arameans here. The Arameans no longer came raiding into the land of Israel. I just think that's a win for nonviolence here, right? Like all the stuff we've seen with what Elisha does. And yet we have this powerful moment where this army comes raiding. And how does he defeat them? He brings them in and feeds them. And then they, they decide not to, not to raid anymore, not to be their enemy anymore. This to me seems somewhat unique. There's another example a little later, but it's not as profound or not as dramatic as this one. You know, this example of of nonviolence winning the day here. Yeah, this is definitely, like you said, this is the the light of God kind of shining through in, in the narrative here. That, like you said, the 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 hosts of heaven that that the servant sees, like that wasn't to intimidate the enemy. That was that was to buoy up and, and to encourage the servant because God's way isn't intimidation. This this idea that how do you defeat an enemy and, and God shows you you love them until they you don't have an enemy anymore. That's yeah, that's that's a very powerful story. You know, at the end of that story it says they didn't come raiding anymore. But what does happen is the Arameans do come and they siege a city. And the siege of the city is, is complex and I don't know that we'll go into the whole narrative of that there are some interesting things going on there but how they get out of this scenario it says that the lord caused them to hear the sound of chariots and so they were sieging the city and then they thought another army was coming they heard this sound like another army was coming and they all just flee and they leave everything behind all their food and gold and everything so all these people that have been suffering under the siege they come out of their city and there's food for them immediately This army is just taken away. So less dramatic than the previous example, but here we have another example of the Lord, quote unquote, fighting their battles for them, right? Not destroying their enemies, but causing their enemies to depart away from them in peace in a sense, right? So over the next several chapters here, we get some coups that happen. You know, we have Jehu, interesting scenario here with Elisha anointing him king and then and then him basically engaging in a military coup, and, and he takes over and becomes king. And then we we have this statement towards the end of chapter 10, because this is a long narrative about this happening. We have this statement towards the end of chapter 10 that basically shows 
the Lord approving of everything that Jehu has done um, in, in mass murdering people, right? It, to me, this is like obviously a, a, a crafted statement that the Jehu PR has come out with to say, <laughs> look, you know, the Lord approved of everything that I just did. I am the legitimate, you know, rightful, divine appointed king of the people right and it just really comes out that way to me <laughs> yeah nothing nothing gets you more longevity than a good pr team right so then we have a, a very interesting thing happening at the beginning of chapter 11 here we have a queen that rules judah now this is not a seen as a legitimate queen by the deuteronomistic historians right She's not, you know, written in the sequence of kings and of monarchs. And so, but, but nevertheless, she does uh, rule Judah. And so Judah at this point has a queen, Athaliah. This reminded me when I was studying Egyptian, ancient Egyptian history, that Egypt had a couple times, but in, in particular, a queen named Hatshepsut. And she was completely erased from Egyptian history for a time. Archaeologists were able to find where she fit into the chronology later on and even a temple that she built and everything because her name was erased out of the, the cartouches and other names were written in. But then they dis, the archaeologists figured this out later that she was actually a ruling queen for a while, but she wasn't seen as legitimate. And so the subsequent monarchs had tried to erase her from the history. And it just kind of reminded me here of what happened. I thought of that when I came to this story about the, the Queen Athalia, who rules Judah for a time, but is not considered legitimate. Okay, so in a, another few chapters here, we've got, again, a, a lot of the same type of history going on here of the kings and, and what they do. Some are good, some are bad. If we look at chapter 14, these first six verses or so, we're going to see an example of what I referenced at the beginning, which is this template of the righteous king, right? What, what a righteous king looks like. It says here, in the second year of King Joash, son of Joahaz of Israel, King Amaziah, son of Joash of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Joadin. Of Jerusalem, He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his ancestor David in all things as he did as his father Joash had done. But the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. As soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he killed his servants who had murdered his father the king. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers according to to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, The parents shall not be put to death for the children, or the children be put to death for the parents, but all shall be put to death for their own sins. Okay, so we have this template going for the king, right? He he does everything not exactly like David, right? Because there's still these couple things that he didn't do quite right, but he was he was pretty good. This gets repeated all over in this book that these sacrifices made in the high places are never gotten rid of. Now, it seems to me that the reason, the practical reason for that is because these are happening, you know, outside the city, up in the mountains. How do you stop this? This is all clandestine, outside of the walls activity. You can't, you know, can't have like your army patrolling trying to stop these types of activities. I'm reminded when I lived in Jordan for a bit and visited Petra, there's several places, but in one place, 
in particular, in Petra, they call it the high place of sacrifice. And this was quite a climb that you had to do up on top of this ridge and cliff. And then there was a flat area carved into the stone. You could see where they would have done the sacrifice of the animal. They like had the, you know, ruts cut out for the flow of the blood and sacrifice and everything. And this was the high place of sacrifice. Anyway, this is something that is outside of the, the city, right? Out in the wilderness. And so this is constantly mentioned, like you see it every other chapter or maybe even every chapter, that the king was righteous, he was good, he walked in the way of the Lord, but there's always this caveat, but he didn't get rid of these, these sacrifices that were happening in the high places. This highlights again the diversity of religious practice that was going on in Israel and Judah at the time. Again, we like to think of it as if there was this one God that they worshiped. But, you know, even even though there's kings back and forth, the people were all over the place as well. And there was very rarely a 100% unified worship under one single religion and practice at any given time. There was a lot of diversity in this. And that makes sense. I mean, could you even like fathom a society where everybody held the same dogmatic view, right? I mean, even even in places like Kirtland or Nauvoo or, or the early saints in, in Utah, who are ostensibly very homogenous, still you've got quite a bit of heterodoxy, right? And that's, that's to be expected. People are, are trying to make sense of their world and their way, and they're going to have different experiences. And uh, you definitely see how that's a problem for for these, and they're butcher the word deuteromonic or at least these took me a while to get that. Back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to practice one. it. You can see how it's definitely a problem for them, but it, it, I mean, it's still happening because it's obviously not really a problem culturally for the people. They, this is this is for them a, a completely legitimate approach to to God that just uh, in their minds it's it's not going against anything, you know. So yeah, well, I mean, this is again in the Deuteronomistic history. This caveat is is just thrown in there all the time, and and it seems to be saying, hey, even even the best of kings during this time didn't quite get back to David, right? And because they didn't quite fully repent, you know, the Lord didn't fully protect them, right? And so they're vulnerable to these raids and these bondage that happens over time, and they allow these things to keep happening, and eventually they're going to lead the people astray. Right. It's, it's just like I told you, if you didn't get rid of that high place of sacrifice, you know, eventually that's going to spread. That's going to fester and going to become a problem. And so that's sort of them pointing back at this thing and saying, look, this is the problem. That was the cause of our fall, of our downfall. And sure enough, you know, when we get to the end of the, the reading here, we get into chapter 16 and we get King Ahaz, who is desecrating the temple. Right. He's taking out the riches of the temple. He's taking off the feet of the altar. He's the the lava, the like the molten sea. Right. He's taking that down and putting it in a different place like he's just destroying the temple in a sense. And it makes me think back to Leviticus when even just like the slightest misstep in the ritual practice would cause the death of people, right? Aaron's sons die because they they don't do the sacrifice quite right. 
And here we have a king going in and just desecrating the temple, and there's not any immediate sort of consequence to this. One of the commentary on this I thought was actually pretty profound on this is that the people have digressed to a point that the temple no longer is the literal presence of God. And because the Lord doesn't dwell there with them, these things are allowed to happen. If God were there, people would die if they came in and did that. But the the fact that they're allowed to do this is evidence that the people have already digressed to the point that God is not there with them. This kind of reminds me of when we, there was a couple podcasts ago, talked about the, the dedication of the temple, where it is said that it is simply symbolic of the presence of God. No, no more are we asserting that God's presence is literally here, right, with the cloud and the pillar and, and all that stuff, but that this is just symbolically the presence of God. Whereas back in Exodus and Leviticus, right, it's like, no, this is like God is actually here. God is here, literally. If you go in there, you're going to see him. And so we've just come to this point where the people no longer seem to care about the presence of God. And so these are the kinds of things that happen is their temple is desecrated. Yeah. And so a couple of things I've been thinking about as I've been listening to you here. One is, of course, this is written with a lot of hindsight and people mm. always like to look back at history and say, oh, I would have I would have seen this coming. Right. If I were living like, for example, Nazi Germany in, in the 1930s, they were like, yeah, I definitely would have seen exactly where this was going. Everybody says that. And I'm sure people that were alive at that time said the same thing about things that happened 50 years before their time. It's not always so predictable. And another thing that's kind of jumping out at me is, so it's not necessarily that because there are these worship in the highest place that it's inevitably going to lead to the desecration of the temple. Another thing that I was thinking about is we like to, and I certainly do this in my in my personal life, that the reason why this good thing didn't happen to me is because of X failure or, or you know, this shortcoming that I've had in this other area of my life is we have to box God into this transactional relationship and we keep doing it over and over and over. And, and it seems to make sense here, like Israel was led into bondage or, or was scattered because look at all of these things, X, X, X and Y and Z. And that makes perfect sense. But then think of, for me, I like to think of Alma the Elder and his people that, you know, they were, they were living essentially a Zion society, right? Near the waters of Mormon and they go off into the wilderness and they're still put into bondage. And we have no evidence that they were doing anything wrong. Sometimes bad things just happen. And I don't think that we necessarily need to point to oh, this happened because, uh, let's put the, the chain of, of consequences in, in order and say it was because of this shortcoming that God allowed this bad thing to happen to me. Some things, bad things just happen, and we can either use them to to our own sanctification, our own edification, or we can mope and, and blame ourselves and, and blame God. And, and but yeah, I, I don't know, i just just trying to think of, of how I would best try to understand this if this were my people going through this, right? Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good point about this. And there is something in back in chapter 14 that actually sort of relates to this point. There's a there's a verse, verse 26 and 27. So this is when people have been brought into to bondage again. But then it says, for the Lord saw that the distress of Israel was very bitter. Now, remember that the woman that came to Elisha, she was in bitter distress. Okay, so. The distress of Israel was very bitter. This is akin to them crying out. Okay, There was no one left, bond or free, and no one to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them 
by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Joash. Okay, so this is the Lord coming to save his people when they don't deserve it. It's there, right? There's another little crack, right? Where, where despite what a lot of the crafters of, of the text want to sort of read back into the history, we have these moments where it's like, despite their wickedness and turning away from the Lord, the Lord still remembered them. He still delivered them, right? All I had to do was cry out or, or be in distress and the Lord would be there to deliver them. This does, I think, for me, is reminiscent of a lot of the words of Isaiah. And so I think that we'll probably tie a lot of that stuff back in because this is what Isaiah is talking about all the time, right? He's, he's just talking to the people. He's going back in history and he's analyzing history and then recent history and speaking to the people symbolically about what's going on so that they can truly understand the relationship with God. So there's a lot of stuff with Isaiah that would, that would relate to these, these concepts here. It seems to be a very obvious theme of all of Scripture, but especially the Old Testament, right? That it's something that you and Chris have talked about. God is the God of the oppressed, and often the God of those that, at least in their own eyes, aren't really worthy of his help. That's who God is. Of course, we always like to see ourselves as the oppressed, no matter what time it is. I mean, that's certainly here in our country. It's one of It's almost comical how... Both sides of, of the political divide are always going to see themselves as the oppressed, whether or not one mm. is or not. Sure. We, we we want to be the oppressed and then seek that help. Like we're we're owed that help because we are the the oppressed. But I, I think this is God showing us that some you know sometimes we might be the oppressed, sometimes we might be the oppressor. But He's always going to be on the side of of those that are struggling and those that need help. And we would be wise to try to also be on their side, right? So like you said. It, it it's understandable for the context of the time, but just like you, you, you kind of want Elisha to say, "Nand, you know, you'll you'll be cleansed if you can free your slave." That's yeah. you, know, you know, an Israelite. That doesn't seem to be the case, right? But it, I, I think that it's it's okay to say that God is not going to abandon those that are suffering the most, and neither should we if we're going to be trying to follow in His footsteps. Great. Well, I think that's all I kind of had to say about this section of reading. Jeff, was there any anything else that you wanted to mention before we mm. sign off? No, I think I think we ended it on a, a really poignant thought, and I'm just grateful that I got to be a part of it today. Thank you. Yeah, well, I sure appreciate you joining me, and we want to give a shout-out thanks to Kyle Swingle for helping us with the editing, and also mention that if you guys, if anybody wants to kind of join the team, so to speak, and, and help us out and in Latter-day Peace Studies, there's different things for people to do in, in joining the team or helping with editing or, or helping manage social media things, stuff like that. If you don't really have the time to do that and you'd like to donate on our website, there's a place to get involved and, and donate. If you feel so inclined, any amount is, is helpful. We don't use that for ourselves. We use that to pay for stuff like the site that helps us distribute the podcast, the, the website hosting. You know, we recently filed for, so we're nonprofit now. You know, there's, there's just fees involved in that kind of stuff. And so anyway, if you want to get involved in that way, you're, you know, certainly would be welcome. So again, thanks, Jeff. And uh, we'll sign off for now. So for Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson.